<laughs> there you go. All right. So this is the Duty to Act podcast, and the goal is to have public service people talk about public service and all different aspects of it. I'd love it if you could introduce yourselves, and I'll get you just to give the introduction that you want to give, and I'll start with you, Dave. Hi, my name's David Story. I'm with Mount Vernon Fire Department. I have been there close to 30 years. I started my journey in the fire service in 1988. Everyone says 1888, but I'm really not quite that old. (laughs) Very nice. And then Julie, if you could introduce yourself. Mm -hmm. My name is Julie Boyer, and I am director of Northwest Incident Support. And it is a nonprofit that has letters of understanding and works with 14 different police and fire departments and uh, one hospital in our area. All right. Very cool. So... Dave, I've worked with you for years, and you brought Julie into Mount Vernon how long ago? One to two years? That's a great question. I'm thinking it was three years ago. Three years ago? I'm guessing. Right after you hired me, you needed to have all that debriefing and all of the counseling and stuff like that, I'm sure. (laughs) I think that is the first time. I remember the call. Mm -hmm. You too. But with the whole COVID thing, my my sense of time is messed up. I think it was probably... Three years ago. I think you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, t- I would love to understand more about, uh, you don't have to talk about the call so much as, but how you found Julie and what made you think that having us be one of her affiliated organizations was the right thing to do. Well, we, before we met Julie, the county has an incidents dress debriefing team. It is made up of awesome volunteers within the county. Uh, They go to some local training, but not, they don't have like a clinical education. Wonderful group of people. But I I think everybody at our department felt we needed something more. So I was a battalion chief that day. Our crew had a call that was needed debriefing afterwards. Um, the hospital also needed debriefing. So Sketch Valley Hospital called Julie because they were contracted with her. And Julie asked, and I believe in the charge nurse there, Mm -hmm. who who are the medics? Who are the fire department that brought this in? And they're like, "Eh, I don't know. And while she was there, she saw one of our other firefighters, mm-hmm. paramedics, mm-hmm. and asked who was the crew, and that got a hold of me. One of my roles as battalion chief was the health and safety officer. So Julie kind of sought us out for that call. Uh, our crew, the crew that went, met with her like in the parking lot, and they came back to me, and they said... That she was awesome. Cool. So well, nice. <laughs> we need to pursue that her program okay. rather than rely on our county program that we've had for sure twenty plus years. So, right. and it basically the county program is a group of volunteers that don't necessarily have anything related to us as an agency or interaction except when they were called in. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. And so in this case now we are 
contracted with Julie and her organization so that we have a dialogue in between these serious calls or these needs for debriefings. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then, Julie, can you talk about it from your point of view and how the magic happened? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I remember I was actually in Arlington the day that I got the phone call from a staff member at Scotch Valley. And they said, this incident is still happening in our ER, but we know that it is going to be serious and our staff is already affected by it. Can you come now? And it happened to be that I was available to to go immediately. And yes, I asked the charge nurse after I figured out what was going on and was like, it's still in play. We won't be doing anything for the hospital staff right away. It'll be in an hour or two. Um, but uh, I went, well, who, who were the medics that brought this case in? Are they here? And they said, no, they're not still here. And someone said, we're not sure. And I said, well, please find out. <laughs> and then someone came back and say, we don't know the exact rig, but we do know it was Mount Vernon Fire Department. So I said, okay. And then it was about two minutes later, one of uh, the Mount Vernon firefighters walked through the door and their patient was low acuity. And as soon as they connected with the staff and were off, I said, hey, can I catch you real fast? Mm -hmm. And then had a conversation and um, that firefighter said, actually, can you call our battalion chief, David mm -hmm. Story, and yeah. um, can we connect you? So that's yeah. how we started. And then, um, yeah, we had we had a basic, we call them like diffusings, just kind of a touch base. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the largest I have ever done. It was such a very unique call. Mm -hmm. um, and we did that with hospital staff as well as fire together, which isn't something we do often. Mm -hmm. But in this case, yeah, I think it was the, powerful. The first time that I know of mm -hmm. that we were at the hospital doing We've that. We've ever done it together. And yeah. And we don't, we still don't do those very often. I think mm -hmm. we've only done three, but um, sometimes it's really powerful to follow a call from start to finish. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, yes, I met with fire specifically out in the mm -hmm. parking lot because I yeah. know that there are different dynamics for, um, for fire and for medics when yeah. they are coming in to the hospital than there are for hospital employees. And so I wanted to make sure that we, we did a follow up and connected with them. Got it. And of the categories, like I said, I don't really want to go into the call, but of the categories of call, because everybody, of course, can relate to this idea that there are some that are more stressful than others. Uh, was this multi-patient? Was it pediatric? Was it somebody that was known to people just in general? I'm wondering a little bit to, of understanding about the dynamic that it was so big and it was ongoing. Mm -hmm. It was uh, a pregnant mother of mm -hmm. one already mm -hmm. who's just having it came in as kind of a non-acuity call mm -hmm. and f our two medics that were there luckily were very seasoned and they mm -hmm. just yeah felt something weird she was alert oriented everything mm -hmm. was yeah they're like all right let's run you up see what's going on and she coded mm -hmm. in the back uh so we had it was multi-patient because yeah. they were working on the mother, and then she was right. pretty late term. So yeah. emergency C-section right. while they're doing CPR on the mom. So pediatric right. and multi-patient. Yeah. So you've got departments. You've got EMS, of course. I'm sure law was involved in the call because our law enforcement responds on so many calls with us. Mm -hmm. uh, you have emergency department. They have specialty teams coming down from the obstetrical unit. They have surgeons coming down. And then uh, it was still ongoing because there was a, a viable patient as well as a patient that a critically ill patient as well as a potentially viable patient. So multi-patient. Okay. Correct. Yeah. We, in the end, 
Um, I think we added it up and there were between 90 and 100 people uh, worked together for these two patients from the start of the medics arriving all Mm -hmm. the way to the end with uh, closing the mom up after the C-section. Yeah. So, wow. That's uh, uh, such a huge call. And I do, I was not on duty. I was not involved, but I do recall, you know, just the, the, um, aftershocks, the the current and the waves afterwards where people were just still talking about it and were still experiencing it. So mm-hmm. that's really good. Um, Julie, can you talk about your business then a little bit more? And do you usually, you said you've only got one hospital contract. Do you usually encounter EMS that way, fire and EMS, or um, do they seek you out? How do you normally, and, and also what it is your business does? So. Yeah, great question. Yeah, so we're a nonprofit, and we have letters of understanding with our police and fire departments, um, in addition, like we said, to this one hospital team. Um, and we do a variety of things. So for several of our departments, we offer community chaplaincy. Um, so we have teams that come in after traumas working specifically with community members, um, as well as support teams. Mm-hmm. And then we also have certain members of our team who work with first responders themselves mm-hmm. um, as support for them. And then doing this critical incident stress management piece and resilience training, uh, as well as uh, just living life on life with relationships Mm -hmm. and building the relationships up so when the crises happen, then we're there to support. Okay. We don't advertise. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have discovered that if um, we have more than enough uh, to deal with as as is right now. Mm-hmm. There are so many traumas that happen. There are so many deaths that happen. There are so many challenges that occur that we don't need to look for business. Yeah. So uh, our departments typically seek us out. Yeah. And you've got letters of understanding with a bunch of departments. Do you do sort of one off um, if you get called in without I'm, I'm thinking about an agency that might just say we need this right now at this time. Uh, does it have to be a pre-existing relationship that bridges no, you there? No, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. We've gone in and connected with departments after a critical incident. Okay, that they're like, we need support now for yeah. our people. Can you get here within six hours, for instance, or can you get here within two hours, or can you do a follow-up tomorrow? Okay. Um, and so we've actually done that with several agencies. Oh, good. That aren't our own. In addition to um, getting people who will individually call us from other mm-hmm. departments. And um, a piece of walking through responders through their trauma, sometimes it's um, connecting people to treatment options for post-traumatic stress or um, or for other addictions. Um, and sometimes it is um, helping connect them with counselors who are culturally competent, okay. who can walk them through next steps. And sometimes it's just listening in the middle of the night when someone calls and they're having a hard time. Got it. You talked about chaplaincy, and I think a lot of people associate chaplaincy with being a religious response. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me if that's right or tell me more about that? Yeah, great question. So um, all of our chaplains can offer spiritual support, but that isn't always the primary uh, response on scene. A lot of times um, I hear that all the time if I go on scene as one of our community chaplains, if I'm filling in where someone will say, I'm not religious. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's fine. I'm just here to walk you through the next steps and I can provide spiritual support if you want. Otherwise, I'm here to walk you through the practical next steps. So each of my chaplains are certified in order to provide spiritual support. If someone requests that, 
but otherwise we're there for the practical next steps. And in Washington State, our departments, um, when we've been trained and we're certified with them, then we'll even have custody transferred over to us from law enforcement sometimes for next steps if they have to go to another critical call. So we are part of the chain of command when we're on scene, which surprises a lot of people because they don't realize that Mm -hmm. um, that's how chaplaincy works in um, the greater Puget Sound area. So okay. in particular, and then other places in our state as well. Okay. How does that work, that you're part of the chain of command, and if law enforcement has to leave, like, mm-hmm. they hand off? For instance, yes. Yeah. For instance, I was on a death not too long ago, and the medical examiner was coming out. And typically law enforcement, um, when the coroner or the medical examiner is coming, they have to keep a uh, chain of command, and they have to be on scene until um, the Emmy or coroner arrives. Mm -hmm. And there was a critical incident that was occurring and it was a hot call in the county. And they, and the officer looks at me, he's like, I don't know what to do. I said, don't forget, I'm part of a chain of command. You Mm -hmm. can call your sergeant. And he said, my sergeant knows you. He loves you. He said that you know how to preserve evidence if something weird Mm -hmm. happens. So he said, you are officially in control of the scene until Mm -hmm. the Emmy investigator arrives. And I said, that's normal. Okay, I've got it. So that's what it looks like. And and when we're on scene, we are under the chain of command, um, regardless if, if I'm going for peer support for responders or if I'm going for the community, then I fall into that chain of command and need to respect that. And when I'm off scene, then uh, typically there are times where I will challenge administration for, um, and I'm seen as an equal when mm-hmm. I'm advocating for mental and emotional health or um, just health in general for our response. So, Dave, do you think that you mentioned being in your career since for 30 years, basically 30 plus years, do you think that you would have faced this differently um, in your early years versus oh, your yeah. later years? Like, I think there's a, a way that we hold in our brains what it means to seek help when you're new in the job compared to where you are 30 years later. And of course, you were a battalion chief. So your, res- your chief responsibility is the care of your people. They get to take care of the fire and the EMS and so on, and you have to take care of your people. How do you think that, your 30-year perspective? I I think in the last 10 years, it has we finally have opened our eyes to it and found the importance of it. And it's slow to move forward like, I, like any change. But, yeah, when I started, my, my uh, officers and senior people – were just a very different generation. A lot of them were coming out of Vietnam. They were all, you know, so so there wasn't a lot of crying and hugging, let's say, yeah. after a call. <laughs> yeah. At all. Yeah. So, um, yeah, now it's, it is spectacular. It's on the forefront. And now it is not, I don't think anyone at our department is hesitant about opening up and seeking help. Yeah. So we talk about it. We do like a hot wash Mm -hmm. at the end of calls all the time. So. um, What's your strategy for hot wash? What makes you say like this call needs a hot wash and this is how and when we're going to do it? Well, working with you, Jennifer, (laughs) you like to hot wash all calls and also (laughs) – I work with Carl, yeah. who is af- after every single call. He's like, what went right? What went wrong? Mm-hmm. So we 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 kind of are doing it as far as 
protocol, what went right, what went wrong. But if it is a call that has trauma or PDR or whatever, that something might trigger something. I think it, we just kind of flow into it. Mm-hmm. Um, we just had a CPR and the scene was just perfect. It was, this is how we're talking about mental health and the fire and EMS service and law. We're kind of messed up. So yeah. after this call, the, we went and did a little hot wash and we were like, oh, it went great. We were in a kitchen, white linoleum floor, lots of room, bright light. Because we always train like in a, we never train like in a bathroom or yeah. in a ditch in the water. Yeah. And that's what we're like, gosh, everything was perfect in there. Except for the fact that this young guy passed away. Yeah. Young for me. So a lot of my crew thought he was old. But. Yeah. <laughs> but we, that's what we kind of talked about, how well everything went. There was no bodily fluids anywhere. IVs went good. Tubes, everything went great. The, and everybody's like, yeah, and the lighting was perfect. <laughs> it was a well-lighted scene. Yeah, there was nothing around us. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards we're like, this is what we're talking about, not the fact that this, yeah, this person passed away in front of his kids and grandkids and mm. spouse. So, wow. so we kind of hot washed it, mainly about how the scene went. We had a new person and how they did, but we kind of segued into okay, let's let's talk really what happened. Yeah, this guy passed away in front of his whole family. Yeah. So I think we all recognize kind of what 20 or 30 years of this business does to your emotional state. Yeah. So, but I think it's way better that we talk about it now. Yeah. All the time. So I'm super glad that Melbourne signed this contract. Yeah. I remember being 17 years old and starting off as a volunteer firefighter and pursuing my EMT. I was just immediately out of high school and they called a CISD team for me specifically. They called, they said, well, the team's coming. We're all going to talk about this because you got pale. You were just so pale. And I'm like, I'm 17 years old and two people died Mm -hmm. in a horrifying car crash. You're upset because I got pale. Mm -hmm. And it, it seemed almost a punitive thing that CISD was being called. And at 17 years old, it's my first experience with so many things, you know, the death, so much uh, with the how to debrief and people looking out for one another in that way because we're in these extreme circumstances. And I thought at the time that it was it was fine, but I felt like it was punitive, that it was something they were we wouldn't have it here if you didn't get pale. We wouldn't have had it here mm-hmm. if you weren't there. And so that was really hard for me to deal with. But I recall many years later when I was working in Skagit County, but we're talking about 20 years ago now, I was part of a call where there was a drowning, a two-year-old drowned at home, unattended, bathtub full of water, um, parent was absent at the time. And it was a really stressful call for many scene reasons, not not just the nature of the patient, but also many reasons on the scene. There was a lot of aggression, very, very upset human beings at this call. We did a debrief with 
our dispatchers as well as the hospital staff. They just got everybody together a couple days later, not terribly efficient, but a couple days later we did a debrief. And where I had this attitude like, ugh, these things, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I had a very negative attitude. What I discovered at the time was uh, my being there and talking about what happened and talking to the dispatchers made a huge impact on the dispatcher. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I had a 20-year relationship with the dispatchers that nobody else experienced or had because I made a point to say, hey, you guys have no idea what happened on scene. You just know that we left a body behind. But just so you know, everything that could have been done was done. And So I, I, had, a, I had a complete and total attitude for the first 10 years out of my, of my career. And then the past 20 years, I've had sort of a positive because it's not just about me being there getting this counseling. It's about me being there for everybody else. And perhaps they'll be there for me and we'll put these pieces together. So do you think that there's still that sense that maybe calling CISD is a sign of weakness? I know Dave talked about uh, his feelings on it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's mixed. Yeah. I think some people see it as a sign of weakness, um, depending on how they were trained in their own careers. Mm -hmm. I think some people uh, have had really negative experiences mm -hmm. with uh, diffusing or debriefing, especially with outside teams that come in that don't already have relationships with them. Sometimes you have very positive uh, experiences and sometimes extremely negative. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people's responses are out of those past experiences that are very valid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, but I feel like the next generation coming in, uh, departments are doing a good job of setting it up as a, as in, this is the norm. Mm -hmm. This is what's going to happen after hard calls. If you're having a hard time with a call, speak up, don't let it go for 10 or 20 years because that's where some of us are. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that the firefighters of Dave's generation, mm -hmm. who are saying, like, don't let this catch up with you, are uh, making probably the most impact, I would say, yeah. on the next generation of fire. Nice. That's really nice. I had uh, one guy has, um, in one of my departments, he's been on several infant deaths in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And every time we talk, he said, Julie, it's not this one. It's the very first one in my career mm -hmm. that I still go back to. And he said, I should, I wish I'd had this back then because mm -hmm. I still have challenges when I think about it. And he always speaks up in these debriefings that we have and tells all the young ones, if I had had this, I probably wouldn't still struggle with it in this way. Um, and uh, it's made a, a pretty large impact on our new firefighters, I think, to hear him say that. Oh, wonderful. I agree. I work with a guy who is giant in stature, and he's been there forever, and he is kind of, a lot of new people shake in their boots when he comes in the room, <laughs> and just two shifts ago, he talks about how often he cries, and I think when they hear oh. it from this guy, yeah. You probably know what I'm talking about. I'm, I, well, I, I know his, of three people that you could be talking about. So two. Because his dad, who is bigger yeah. than him, yeah. cries all the time. Yeah. And he's in the fire service. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you mentioned, hopefully I'll have that impact. Yeah. But, uh, but I think when they hear it from, yeah. you know, this other guy, like him crying all the time. Yeah. Like, well, if he does it. There's something to this idea of sharing vulnerability. There's certainly a lot of writing about it right now. I'm studying it in school as a way you share your vulnerability to 
help people in the workplace feel more comfortable in the workplace. And in general, I'm reading things about, you know, when I was new, I struggled with learning how to do this as well. And that's the sort of vulnerability that we're sharing at a corporate level. But if you think about what Brene Brown has talked about in vulnerability, mm-hmm. and you talk about the ability to communicate and develop this two-way communication so much faster by sharing vulnerability. So we do that, I think, in the fire service. I know I spend all the time talking about all of my mistakes. I constantly, oh, I remember when I did that. I remember when I did that. And I'm training new people. So perhaps knowing that I have fallen out of the back of the ambulance in the exact same way, or I have <laughs> missed that diagnosis, or uh, I was the one who ran over the fire helmets or something like that, that shared vulnerability. <laughs> and now to think about it in this terms of true vulnerability, true emotional vulnerability and raw feelings and being able to share those things. I think that's really great. So probably this is a lesson that shouldn't have taken us as long to learn it as it has. And I'm going to get these dates probably all mixed up. But I remember, I believe it was like in the late 70s, there was a PSA commercial flight that crashed into a city outside of San Diego. Mm -hmm. And I remember the picture I don't know if it got picture of the year in time life. It's just this jet augering. And they said like 90% of the first responders quit mm-hmm. after that. And then mm-hmm. a few years later, they had another one, another type large scale plane accident. And they did some debriefing and how 80% worked through it. Worked through it. And I think that was back in the 70s and mm-hmm. 80s. And it, I don't know, it just seemed like it just barely creeped along mm-hmm. for the longest time yeah. uh, until, I don't know, five, five, maybe 10 yeah. years ago. And now it's, people are finally doing something about it more. Mm-hmm. Got it. I, um, I think that's a really good one to bring up, especially if you think about the things that we know that have happened to first responders Uh, when baby Jessica fell in the well Mm -hmm. and the first responder that had to go into the hole to get her out, he ended up ultimately committing suicide. What I found interesting is that attributed a lot of that was attributed to the notoriety afterwards that he Mm -hmm. wasn't just able to disappear back into his job, but instead he was interviewed and pursued and known and thought of as that person so he could never escape it. That was also the baby Jessica in the well was the first media event that was ever televised to that degree. And and when I say mm-hmm. I shouldn't say the first media event, but the first such media event where it was first responders on American soil and there was the 24-7 coverage of the the so many hours it took and all of the planning and the way it took to go in there and get this little girl out of there. And he ultimately ended up committing suicide. And we were just at We were in Oklahoma City. We went to the Oklahoma City bombing site. Mm. There's a beautiful memorial there. Have you either of you been? I don't know. Yeah. The memorial is stunning on many levels. There's this idea. There's a clock at one end and a clock at the other end. And time stood still in between because that's when the bombing occurred. So it's the time, the minute before and the minute after on these big towers. And then in the middle is where the uh, bombing occurred. There's a tree that stood through the bombing. It survived all of everything and it's now heavily protected and beloved. And But 
the memorial has written around the tree a thank you to all of the first responders that helped. So the memorial is for the victims and for the families, and yet there's this amazing corner of it that is devoted to the first responders. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, probably we could go back and research this and do these big moments of our lives, like the study that you mentioned about the the following accident, the one mm -hmm. after 1978, and that plane and how those people survived. So it's pretty amazing. I think one of the most powerful things I hear, and I hear it often, is I didn't know that I'm not crazy or that this is normal and I am not alone. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of times I'll ask other first responders, can I share your story without your name? Or can I say a little bit to mm -hmm. this new person? Or would you be willing to share your story with this young firefighter because it's the same kind of story. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they say no and sometimes they say yes because everything that's told to me is in confidence. So sure. I won't use someone's story even without names unless I have permission. However, I think that's a powerful piece of just knowing, mm -hmm. oh, I am not alone and other people feel this way. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I don't know why it's it, – it is so eye-opening sometimes mm -hmm. for responders who are so practical in every other way. But I think that the feelings around um, certain incidents can be so isolating mm -hmm. that people often underestimate the fact that just knowing they're not alone in it and other responders feel the same way is powerful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier that you work on resiliency. What does mm -hmm. resiliency work look like? A lot of times uh, with our departments, we're doing like foundational resilience training. It's just about two hours and just reminders of this is how to stay healthy throughout your entire career and just scratching the surface of some basics to think about. And then over time, developing out more curriculum with focus on um, getting better sleep and your physical um health, everything from nutrition all the way to working out. And usually working out is the piece that has been focused on. Yeah. But there's so many other aspects of nutrition and uh, physical health that can transform your mental and emotional health. And so um, that resilience piece is just teaching people. We often talk about it's how to bounce back after mm -hmm. an event. Um, and sometimes they say, you know, when you bounce back, you may not be the same shape and things won't look the same because you've been through a traumatic event and often it changes everything forever. So you might be a little bit different shape when you bounce back, but it's doing that in a healthy manner where you don't get stuck in one specific place. And if we can teach new generation as well as old generation within our police and fire system how to do that, um, then so many of the challenge and sticking points that come up um, would not occur. Okay. All right. Dave, what are your resilience tips for a long career in fire and EMS? I think the first one is don't be a battalion chief. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say this. I support all this, but I think I am horrible at following through for myself with it. I don't, I don't talk to people about things or that. And I don't know if it's, I don't know why, because I know how great it is, but uh, I, I don't know really what a tip is. I teach this high school students about it and let them know that it will change you for the worse. Mm -hmm. And I have seen that in me. My wife said, when I met you, you were so fun and go lucky. <laughs> and I, I don't know. You just look at 
I just look at everything in kind of a negative light, you know? I remember when my daughter was 16, driving away in this little tiny Toyota Tercel, you know, from the 80s. And I, I think because of my job, I look at that way differently than like my wife looked at it, you uh-huh. know? She hasn't pulled dead kids out of a car. Yeah. So you just look at everything differently. And I I don't know if that could ever be changed or not. Yeah. But so I think my tip would be just be ready that you are going to change emotionally, which is okay. Mm-hmm. There's that's just what happens, you know. Yeah. So I think is that a tip or not? I, there you go. Or a I think, warning. I think that's a, that's, a, that's the warning. That's going to be the red right. line warning on this on the box tape here. Yeah. I um I know the ways that I've changed, and I think that I've grown as a person into what I hope is a pretty good person. I feel like I'm I I'm in this constant pursuit of being a really good person, and it's been colored by these experiences, but. Uh, the physical stuff, this idea, like, you know, workout is great. And yesterday I was exhausted at work, uh, needlessly exhausted at work. And everybody needed something from me and everybody, uh, I had and I had a trainee and I had to go to training. And there was one thing I wanted to do for the day. And we got a call that interrupted that. It was just too much of a hassle. And I was, I was on the grumpy side of things. And uh, the battalion chief came to me and said, you heard about this thing? Do you want to do a thing? And then 30 minutes later, the battalion chief is still talking to me. And I'm like, I have completely lost the thread of what it is that you're trying to get at. <laughs> and I appreciate all of this topic, but I have five minutes to pee and get to the next training thing. So what is it that you need from me? And so I, I felt this grumpiness, but uh, despite being exhausted and despite this grumpiness, you know, some hard work, uh, physical work actually made a big difference. Mm-hmm. And then sleep is the next thing for sure. And sleep for me beats everything else, by the way, everything mm-hmm. in my life. If I don't sleep is, it's not as good, mm-hmm. but, um, do you see any particular, um, idea of a, a workout that is beneficial or is harmful? Does that ever come up? Cause it does sometimes. Yeah, sometimes an extra hard workout mm-hmm. after a critical incident is actually uh, worse. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like a long walk outside or a hike or a slow workout or mm-hmm. an easy workout is actually more beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tax your body too much um, when you're having a hard time. So there is definitely that dynamic that can occur. Um, and I think it's figuring out what works out what works for your body and works for your career and works for your mind mm-hmm. over time. Everybody is different. And I'll often give multiple examples of things to do when you're still on shift and on duty mm-hmm. after a hard incident um, or one of the extremely critical or traumatic incidents. And then also when you get home mm-hmm. and everybody has to figure out what works for them yeah. and what works for them in a normal one might not work in a really big one. And so just kind of processing through that and figuring out. But yeah, sometimes the physical workout really intensely um over the two or three days after a critical incident can almost be more harmful than good. Got it. Do you ever work with uh, families, spouses, or help with um, families and spouses to assist in, um, I'm trying to think of 
coaching, for example, I'm sitting here with my husband, and so would you be available to coach him on how to manage his stressed public service worker? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Actually, this weekend, I thought, oh, this was an interesting weekend. It didn't hit me till Monday morning. I had four spouses call me over the weekend, and three of them I have never met in person before, Mm -hmm. and they were from all different departments. And I thought, I didn't talk to one first responder but I talked to four spouses, um, and uh, I think it's the first time I've ever had multiple call in one specific period of time. So I kind of stopped and paused and went, oh, that was interesting. Um, and they called about all different things. One said, um, I think we're headed toward a divorce, and I'm not even sure my spouse realizes it, and they're not hearing me. And another one, this is very common that I get, my loved one is not present when they are home. And I don't know what to do about it because they are not connecting on any level. And it's beyond the normal, they're not present mentally and emotionally for the first 24 hours after a hard shift. Right. It's going way beyond. And so it's it's things like that. So, yes, I am available for spouses and partners and family members. And then also sometimes they're having a hard time with their like postpartum depression mm-hmm. um, will occur for a spouse and I'll have um, someone track me down and say, hey, we're struggling with this at home. Do you have any tips for us or do you have counselors we can get them into because the wait list is nine months and we mm-hmm. need something now? Or um, I've had during COVID, especially I had multiple responders call about their teenagers. Mm-hmm. And some we couldn't get off the wait list. Usually I can get I can get spouses, um, partners, uh, and kids in fairly quickly um, mm-hmm. of first responders. I have a network built up. Um, but we couldn't for some of them. So I actually had – there was one week – All I did was teenage counseling Mm -hmm. for responders' kids, and I just went from place to place and coffee shop to coffee shop, and um, I even picked two of the kids up because they didn't drive yet, and their parents said, can you just come by the house? They said, that's okay, Um, to get them through that trauma experience or that anxiety or those suicidal ideations, because for responders— it's, I think, even harder than the general public. Anytime anything happens with a kid or a spouse or a partner— it is so challenging, but for responders who are used to going in and creating as much order as out of chaos as possible and fixing the problem and passing it off, when their loved ones at home are not doing well, that can be more painful and challenging than anything they encounter at work. Got it. So. All right. I, uh, as the side project, one of the side projects that I'm working on is this idea at work, we have this group, it's for the good of the order. And so it's a culture club is this idea of working on our culture and uh, paying attention to the little things and making everybody work better together. So we are having a meeting coming up and I'm super excited that you're going to be there. I'm trying to remember, I think it's August's meeting that mm-hmm. you're supposed to come to. Yeah, I believe so. So it's, um, it's date night. We're going to do a date night gathering at the fire station community room. Uh, we're doing this monthly and different themes and like this month's theme is cheeseburgers very excited about that (laughs) but uh julie's going to come in it's date night so just bring your significant other and i mean obviously it's at the fire station it's just a work and a work event but julie's going to be there to talk about that so whatever comes up whether she wants to talk about something in particular or just organic conversations when we're there but trying to have a social event with the spouses and significant others so that um there's a little bit more of a network and a little bit more of this idea that, you know, we're 
we exist outside of the walls that we meet each other in at the fire station and working with law enforcement and so on. Just we're more than that. And mm -hmm. I have a hard time sometimes imagining my coworkers and their family lives. You hear, you know, somebody has got four kids and you're just like, I don't see it. I don't understand it. <laughs> so I think that's really cool that um, we can bridge that this way. So Dave, you've had, uh, through your career, you have two children and a lovely wife, and you mentioned your daughter earlier and uh, driving off in a little teeny car that she shouldn't have been driving because <laughs> it wasn't safe enough. So it was a Volvo. The first car's always got to be a Volvo. Um, but how how do you think your views are, or what are your views about the the fire service, the department that you've been at for your entire career as your family, as well as your family at home, do you feel like you've had enough crossover, too much crossover? I think it's been, for my me and my family, I think it's been a, a good balance. I mean, we have, as you know, we have people that, firefighters that grew up together mm -hmm. from, they were neighbors and they went to kindergarten together. Mm -hmm. And we have... We have one guy, I think his all his sisters married firefighters that work at our department. Yes, they're so they literally, <laughs> yeah, I can't tell them apart, unfortunately. It's really sad. They are literally 24 hours together, you yeah. know, they are they're like brothers and sisters at home, yeah. And so we're not like that, mm -hmm. but uh, no, we have some. Good friends, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm going to a graduation party for a coworker son today, and very cool. Yeah, so I think a good amount. A good amount. Yeah, I think about so many organizations where the people only interact with one another as coworkers. Mm -hmm. They completely go home at the end. Maybe once a year, there's a fancy Christmas party that one member of their family comes to. But uh, we have a, a person we work with who has worked at the department as long as Dave almost, and his uh, wife or daughter or son come in for dinner. They're, you know, adult adults mm -hmm. now. And they they just kind of come in and join them for dinner and uh, holidays. The families of the on-duty crew will come in and there'll be a big turkey or something, whatever needs to be done like that. And I, I think that idea of the family crossover is really amazing. I think that helps us with that idea of supporting each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, think about when bad things happen to the family and how we rally around one another too. So, you know, we used to always do a kid's Christmas party and we did it for years. And then we got to a point where they're really, it was kind of 10 and under maybe age group. So, and then we, we just kind of went through a period where there were like no kids that age anymore. So we didn't do it for years again. And we did it last year for the first time in a long time. And I had so many, People with little kids came up and said the, how awesome it was. And we had a huge turnout. Mm -hmm. So I th I think that's super important. So, yeah, I think it's and it is, it is when you work with somebody, like you said, and you're like, you don't picture them if, you know, as in a different role mm -hmm. than that. So, yeah. yeah. It's neat. I, I appreciate. Uh, that I get to know my coworkers' families a little bit, uh, that you get to get this behind-the-scenes glimpse of them. 
mm-hmm. which I think is really helpful. And you maybe in some ways you don't feel as bond with the particular coworker until you know them in that different mm-hmm. kind of light, which is pretty cool. Yeah. When you, uh, uh, when you end up working with the families and when you end up working with uh, spouses or teens or anything like that, do you have a different part of your organization that you call on? I know that you talked about your work specifically, but mm-hmm. I was wondering, do you have specialty services for teens through the rest of your organization? Yeah, we have a few of our volunteers who have mm-hmm. worked with kids for years. And then we also have several just, um, I would say, really powerful community connections mm-hmm. that maybe don't work within our organization, but sometimes I think they practically are because yeah. we have referred so many people to them or called on them and their expertise to work with so many of our families. So I think keeping up those powerful community relationships mm-hmm. um, is maybe something that is just as strong of what we do as training our own people. Um, so that's... I was remembering back to when I looked at your website. I'm like, I remember something, but I don't remember what it was mm-hmm. about just the, the breadth of your organization. So that's really great. What? Uh, how did you come into your organization? Were you a founder? What It existed and then you brought in a different facet to it? Yeah, it already existed. It began, um, our founder started it in 2002 and then made it more formal in 2005. Uh, And it was modeled after Tacoma Pierce Chaplaincy um, and their greater organization, and then also Support 7 in South Snohomish County. So it's kind of a combination. And then I returned to the Northwest. I'd grown up here and spent 18 years in Tennessee and then came back in 2015. Mm -hmm. And I was doing some training with Seattle Police and Fire uh, for the most part, but there were a few people from our area down that way from Skagit and Snohomish County. And someone said, wait, you have what experience? You live where? And that's how I got connected with our organization as a volunteer and then eventually as a staff member. So... uh, It was very much focused on community response and then supporting some responders and some of the agencies uh, with which we worked. And then we've added a lot of this element with working with our peer support teams and the resilience training piece and working with families over the last four to five years that didn't exist before that. And part of that is the gift mix and the training of our staff and lead volunteers. And then some of that is also... um, just because of the need, I think, and the trust that's been built up for so many years and uh, responders able to say, hey, we need more. Can your organization do this or should we go somewhere else for it? All right. Do you ever do work with uh, animals like animal support and um, therapy dogs and things like that? Sometimes we have some organizations that we work with that can bring their dogs in and um, that's that's a powerful piece. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, the other day, one of the guys is like, hey, you haven't brought therapy dogs in in a while. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Like, I'll make the call. Sorry. <laughs> just kind of have so, the dog do it. Just, just a dog walking through the station. Just a dog walking through, yes. just, just bring your dog to the station and everybody will love it. Yeah. That's great. We have a few responders whose dogs are trained or they're talking about training them because they already have the personality for it. Uh-huh. And I called one wife the other day and I was like, hey, can you run the dogs through like a couple of the stations? It's been a kind of a hard day and yeah. your dogs bring so much joy. And she's like, sure. And she popped up. <laughs> so even sometimes if they're not official, uh-huh. there's still so much joy that can be brought and it's it's powerful to watch the animals in the room even mm-hmm. if they're not fully trained but they're just well trained in general they might not be therapy trained mm-hmm. like i love to watch them because they pick out who needs it 
Yeah. Um, and they'll go and sit at someone's feet or they'll like mm-hmm. continue on until they get attention from mm-hmm. someone when they can sense something yeah. powerful going on inside. So um, it's a, I think it's a huge piece and I'd love to explore it more. We've been talking to some of the partners about just creating a regular schedule just to come through. Oh, that'd be a nice little, little puppy schedule, little mm-hmm. dog schedule. I've heard of businesses where you can actually just order puppies to come to your door and just kind of spend some time with puppies. Do you remember during the pandemic, there was a big thing about dogs delivering beer? Do you remember that? There were a couple. I never mm-hmm. saw that. Oh, for heaven's oh, sake. Do you use that often? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, there were a couple. Um, I, of course, I'm blanking on it right now, but there was a thing that happened during the pandemic where, of course, people were having food delivered, but then you had to do contactless delivery. And so what they would do is put the little harness on the dog and they'd stand at the street and they'd send the dog up to the front door with the I guess the six pack of beer or something like that. <laughs> so I think dogs and beer, that's pretty good. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the innovation of people, uh-huh. the the things that people can imagine to do. I'm always blown away by that. So mm-hmm. yeah. How about um since we are talking about COVID, um, I think I would love it if you guys have any positive lockdown memories do you have any positive lockdown memories to share it's kind of a weird question to ask mm-hmm. but dogs delivering beer obviously was not part <laughs> of your fun. life but that would have been a great covid memory wouldn't it didn't happen at the lockdown stations unfortunately no. yeah. <laughs> you know we were empty nesters when covid hit so and we were really busy at work initially it seemed like but i really I didn't really feel that locked down. Mm-hmm. I didn't have kids, you know, that I had mm-hmm. that I had at home twenty four hours and because of school or anything. Yeah. So I really don't. I was teaching a little, and I went to Zoom teaching, which I I couldn't do. <laughs> it's too hard to look at a classroom when they're all like one inch little <laughs> pictures on the screen. Yeah. So that was hard. Yeah. Did you develop any anything about COVID? I just yeah, I think kind of twofold. I live on the family property, and we have three homes on the property. So my brother and sister in law are both teachers, Mm -hmm. and then they have four kids. So and then my parents have another home, and then I have a different one. So all of us were at home on the property Mm -hmm. together, and it actually was a really sweet memory. We Mm -hmm. had a lot of fun getting to do family dinners and barbecues and enjoy Mm -hmm. time with one another um, that we never would have had. And three of my nieces and nephews were teenagers at the time, Mm -hmm. and I would never have seen them otherwise. They were out, would have been out and about doing sports and school and everything else. And it was really sweet to have some of those memories and those moments with them. Um, And then I laughed with a lot of friends. I'm like, you all went home and organized your homes and your closets Uh and everything else. And my workload doubled and I was (laughs) gone way more than all the rest of you. Like uh, trauma and humus did not slow down. And because of LNI restrictions, my team went from 21 to three for for who were allowed to respond in the stations and on scene for a season. Wow. So instead Uh, of me running like 50 to a hundred calls a year for peer support and community, I was doing 400 personally during that season. So it was wild. But I would say the relationships that I got to build Mm -hmm. with first responders, especially because they were all in the stations if they weren't out on calls. Mm -hmm. They weren't out in the public, except for maybe the grocery store. Um, 
doing uh, community interaction because of the limits on that. And so I got to build relationships and rapport and just kick it at the station way more than I would have in the past. And I think that the strength of those relationships even coming out of COVID and the trust that's been built up and phone calls and conversations that have happened with me and other team members who eventually rolled back in and got to have some of those same experiences is powerful. Got it. And then just kind of in our last few minutes here, I have kind of another strange question, but I'd love to hear, uh, Julie, I've heard you talk before about what brought you into this kind of work that you suffered a, you were part of a major a weather incident, mm-hmm. right? And then uh, Dave, I wonder if each of you would talk about what brought you into the world that you decided to spend your life in. So whoever wants to go first. Okay. I, uh, I'll go first. <laughs> I had no idea really what to do after high school. My brother knew like from eighth grade, I'm going to do this. He did it. He's successful at it. So I don't know. I wanted to, I love I wanted to be a marine biologist because I love the beach and ocean, but it, I found out after high school that I was not very collegiate. <laughs> <laughs> College was, it was hard. I didn't know how to study. It, I don't know. So I bounced around. I went to school for 10 years before I got my two-year degree. So my mom was a nurse and she said, oh, be a paramedic. It never really crossed my mind. I I had no other options. I was student teaching. I didn't like it. Anyways, so I I feel I kind of fell into it pretty late. I was probably in my mid-20s. I took an EMT class, and everyone in the EMT class was looking to be a firefighter. So I went to a two-year community college for firefighting, and I actually loved reading about it. And mm-hmm. I don't know. Just kind of, I feel I kind of fell into it. I don't know what I would have done if I couldn't find a job that would hire some kid with a high school diploma, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and to make a career with a pension and health. I don't know what I would have done, but I've always, even I think back, even as a teenager, I was, I was kind of always the responsible one in our group. Mm-hmm. Other parents were like, I don't want you to go unless me or my brother was going. My brother was a year older than us. And I remember when we were little, my mom and dad would drop us off. We grew up by Disneyland at Mm -hmm. Disneyland. And we were like eight. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Here's $20 between the two of you. And all the parents would say, you listen to Scott. He's in charge. I'm like, he's nine. (laughs) We're eight. But my brother always was the in charge kid. So, and even in high school, I was kind of... I was, I don't know, parents would always say, is David going? Okay, then you could go. <laughs> so I kind of always has been, I don't know, a caregiver, uh-huh. you know, the responsible the one. responsible one. My car always worked and I had a job, so. Yeah. I was always invited. <laughs> and then as Mount Vernon is your first experience as a firefighter or? Well, you know, I did an internship in California in fire prevention, mm-hmm. which I thought was awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was my first real exposure to that first time I was ever in a fire station. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I got a, my 
high school friend moved up here and there was a volunteer department looking for volunteers. I grew up in a city, so there's no volunteer department where mm -hmm. I grew up. So I went up there and I went in for the first day. I want to be a volunteer. And they're like, sure, here's your gear. And I remember I, we had a call that <laughs> they're like, put it on. <laughs> I didn't know that you took your shoes off before you put your bunker boots on. I'm like, they still fit. They're like, take your shoes off. And I'm sitting in the back of a fire engine. And I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, kind of stuck. And after, it's still fun driving in a mm -hmm. fire engine. Yeah, I think uh, since you've given up being a battalion chief and since you've uh, regressed into driving and, and being the pump operator and things like that, that you've dropped 10 years off your off your face. Yeah. It is so much fun. It's like, I, I don't think you're dying your hair, but it's no longer gray. <laughs> I think your hair was always gray. And so, yeah. yeah. There's this fantastic picture of Dave on his uh, first day back. And they put one of those little overlays on it where it's like kindergarten, first day of kindergarten. <laughs> and it's first day of of captain. Yeah. First day of captain. And when I grow up, I want to be retired and <laughs> all of these great things. So it's a fantastic picture. But, I love it. Yeah. It was not made to sit in an office. I, yeah. I'm just not that cut from that cloth. I yeah. would go out, get dirty. And... Yeah. Mm -hmm. and they'd have to be like, no, you have to go back to the office. You can't stay. So. Mm -hmm. so, and now tell us about how you got your start. Yeah, I started working with police and fire just by overlapping with them. After college, I um, led a local community outreach and it was in the hood. It was the highest murder rate uh, per capita in the nation for several years running mm -hmm. in Tennessee. And so I, I would overlap with police and fire on scene all the time. So I started to get connected with them through that experience. But then in 2008, I was in a building that took a direct hit from an F4 tornado. And I was crushed into a bathtub with five other young women because I had gone to the local university for safety that night. And uh, police and fire, a combination of them and volunteers, um, dug us out that night mm -hmm. and I was unconscious when they initially got to me and then woke up as everything shifted. I hadn't realized the shower curtain had come down over me. That's why I was suffocating and, um, was unconscious. And so, um, afterwards, uh, I didn't realize one of the firefighters that pulled me out went to my church and he caught up with me and he's like, Hey, do you want to come by the fire station before all the media hoopla and the craziness? I said, yes, that would be wonderful. Um, and then continued coming back and, developing a relationship with them. And at, at one point I remember saying to him, I said, you know, Bob, I so ex like, so value and appreciate you guys continuing to invite me out. But I said, I don't want to be seen like as a station groupie or a badge bunny or a hose ho or anything else that's out there, you know? Mm -hmm. And he said, Julie, uh, we're inviting you. You're not just showing up and you're not hitting on anybody. I was like, Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, I'm inviting you because you're a symbol of hope from that night. Yeah. And our crews aren't talking to their department psychs or chaplains or admin or officers. And they're opening up about the experience because it was shared with you. Mm -hmm. And so um, I ended up, like I say, developing a relationship with that station and continuing to um, connect with them over time. And then when I moved back here to the Northwest, I got that connection. Mm -hmm. Um, to start into the job that I'm in. So it took me a good year to heal from that traumatic experience physically. And then, um, I mean, I think that those experiences change us mm -hmm. and it takes a good year or two to heal from them emotionally as well. Um, 
but experiencing that shared trauma and then healing from it. Uh, and I think that healing is kind of inextricably bound with those around you when you mm-hmm. go through a traumatic experience. Um, that was what really brought me into this profession and an entire change of life career mm-hmm. that wasn't intentional, but happened over time as I healed and learned and connected with those around me. Very nice. Uh, anything else you guys want to add? I think it's been a great, it's been about an hour of conversation, 45 minutes, an hour of conversation. Anything you want to add? Think about? I'll just add that very first story I talked about. I just wanted to let everybody know that the baby survived and is still doing great. Oh, wow. Three years later. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's amazing. I hadn't heard that. I knew that the first year, I knew in the first year, um, when the baby made it, I didn't know about since that time. So it's really good yeah. that there's, I think so much that closure concept, that idea that mm-hmm. there's, there's more to the story and we no. finally get closure. We're starting to get that for some of our more routine patients. And that makes a big impact on the job too, which is great. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add? Never heard the word. Hotel. Oh yeah. <laughs> badge bunny. Hotel. I've heard badge bunny. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right.